0: Our Father in Heaven, we are your debtors. Amen. We pray that by your mercy and by the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit, our singing and praising in this second assembly will be a sacrifice well-pleasing unto thee. Hear us as a few of these men... Testify of thy goodness and exhort the congregation. And as we lift up our hearts and our voices to praise thee in song, hear us, O Lord, for we are indeed grateful and thankful for all that thou hast done for us through Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the earnest and seal of all the things that you will yet do for us in the future. We wait For our adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies, we thank Thee that they are Your purchased possession. And You will never lose any part of any one of us who have put our trust in Thee. Amen. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've got four men we'll be listening to. First, Brother Paul. Then,
1: Brother Eric. Then Brother Chris Carnell, and then Brother David Taylor. As we enter upon a new year, the year 2011, are we living a life of godly contentment? Godly contentment. Are we satisfied with our lot in life? Right. Are you content with what God has given you? We live in a society that doesn't know what contentment's all about. They haven't the foggiest idea of what it is to be content with the things they have in their life. Indeed, today's characteristic that we oftentimes think of for this world is the characteristic of covetousness. Not only are they not content, they're covetous. They want more and more. They're not content with anything they have, and they want a lot of other things that they don't have. They want to have things that other people have. They probably don't need them, and they probably can't in many cases even afford what they want. Covetousness, that ungodly desire of wanting what you don't have and what you probably don't need. Paul condemned covetousness in Romans chapter 1. It was one of the characteristics of the ungodly world that... He addresses there in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Besides that, he condemned covetousness as being a a characteristic of the world of the religious that we see in First Timothy excuse me, Second Timothy chapter Mm three. But just know that the last times, perilous days shall come, and men shall be lovers of their own selves and covetous. Second Timothy chapter three. But Paul tells us that we should resist being covetous. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we find that Paul exhorts us and exhorted his young protege, Timothy, that he should be content with the things that he had. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, We read that but godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Yes. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In contrast to being covetous, in contrast to being desirous of the things of this world, in contrast to being taken with the riches, the desire for riches, and the love of money, Paul says this to Timothy, But thou, O man, flee these things and follow after righteousness, Godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. We should be content with the things of this world. We should be content with what we have in this life, but we shouldn't be entirely content. Paul said to Timothy, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. We want to be content with what God has given us in terms of the materiality of this life, but Lord help us to pursue godliness, to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul told Timothy. The apostle himself in Galatians chapter four spoke like this regarding his own contentment. In, in Philippians four, eleven, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, Therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. But Paul wasn't entirely content. He was content with what the circumstances of his life that Paul, that the Lord put him in. But if we read over in chapter three, we find that he was always looking for something more in terms of his walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's desire was that he could win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death Under those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't content in his walk with the Lord. He wanted more. He was pursuing more. He was pressing forth for more. That he could win Christ. That he could be found in him more fully and understand the Lord Jesus Christ more fully in his relationship. That he could experience the righteousness of Christ the power of his resurrection, yeah. the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul, you might have, we might think that Paul had attained, but he hadn't. He was discontent in that sense. He wanted more in his life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to serve the Lord God more fully in what the Lord had given him. He pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then Paul tells us, In that next verse, let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. May that be our goal in 2011, to be content with what the Lord has given us in this life, but to be discontent for the sake of Christ, that we can know him more fully ourselves. That we can understand His righteousness and what He has done for us. That we can serve Him more fully yes. in this life and what we, what we do for Him and how we love Him and obey Him. Yes. May that be our goal. Contentment in this world, discontentment for the sake of Christ and wanting to please and, and be with Him more fully each day by day. Yes. We want to hear Him say, well done thou good and faithful servant, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord.
2: Amen. Amen. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 8, and I'll read a few verses from this chapter and then make a comment or two on it. I'd like to strengthen the hearts of the righteous today. I'd like to encourage you that you can indeed and should have an independent fear of the Lord and seeking the Lord's face despite and regardless of those around you. That is my intent. Isaiah chapter 8, I'll read verses 9 through 20. The context is uh, Isaiah is prophesying that Assyria is about to come and overrun the nation of Israel and Judah and completely overwhelm them regardless of what they do as punishment for their sins. So it's part of a several chapter prophecy about that. Verse 9, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces and give ear all ye of far countries, gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Right. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. Amen. For the Lord spake thus, this is Isaiah talking the first person. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand. He indicted a good matter to him. And instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, this is what the Lord told him. Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel for the Lord, from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Two more verses. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Amen. The context again is the nation of Israel and Judah will have the temptation to gather together to fight the kings of Assyria coming into their land, despite the fact that they have turned from the Lord in previous months and years and not followed the Lord's commandments. But they think, When fear comes upon them, that they're going to associate themselves and form a confederacy and be able to defeat the enemy that the Lord is about to bring upon them. It's impossible. The Lord, though, has his chosen and his remnant in the house of Israel that he speaks to through Isaiah. And the warning to them is, don't fear their fear. Let him be thy dread. Sanctify the Lord of hosts in your hearts because the Lord is directing this for specific purposes and specific reasons. So don't get caught up in the idea that if you band together, though hand join in hand, the wicked should not be unpunished, Proverbs would say. Although you may try to do that and be tempted to try to do that, don't go that path. This is different than foreseeing the the evil and hiding yourself, by the way. Foreseeing the evil and hiding yourself is something that the children of God are commanded to do and it's wise to do. But this is a specific purpose. God is bringing judgment upon the rest of the nation, but he has his select few brought out that he's going to save from it. And this is the warning. Don't get in their camp. Verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Verse 14, and he shall be for a sanctuary. To whom will he be a sanctuary? Those in verse 13, exactly. Those that say the Lord is going to be my my fear and dread. I'm going to seek after his face, regardless of all these people around me. He's going to be sanctuary to them. But for the rest of the nation around me, what's he going to be? For a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Wait a minute. The houses of Israel, these are his people. These are, these are the nation of Israel, the people by covenant he brought out of Egypt and gave all these blessings and signs and wonders. But... All those, all those people in those houses are going to be offended in the true God. They're going to stumble on this prophecy. For a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Yes. Many shall stumble, fall, be broken, be snared, and be taken. However, verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among who? Among whom? Who has the testimony in the law? A remnant. In that house of Israel that Isaiah was sent to, and this law and the testimony, if they seek after the Lord, will preserve them from the Assyrians and the judgment coming upon the house of Israel. Among my disciples, it says, we have a testimony and a law that's been delivered to us in our day, as they did in that day. We have something very precious a body of truth, a body of knowledge. A Lord to seek and sanctify ourselves before that they don't have. They have access to it. It's taught in the sanctuary every day. They could if the Lord gave it in their hearts to, but he's given it to us. So we need to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, and we need to take care of this testimony and this law that's been committed to us because it will deliver us from so much. And I, Isaiah says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. The Lord hides his face from many of those around us all the time. Most of our co-workers, most of those people with whom we do business. And even, sad to say, sometimes those among us in this very very church. He may hide his face from them out of judgment. Or maybe he's not even their father. But guess what? Isaiah says, I will wait upon the Lord. I will look for him. Amen. It is incumbent upon each of us that have the law and the word and the testimony, it is incumbent upon each of us to take that internally and say, I will seek after the Lord, regardless of how the Lord is treating those to my left and to my right, regardless of this great fear of the Syrians coming and wiping out our nation, I will seek after the Lord. It is very important that each of us determine that for ourselves and take this word and this testimony as ours. Yes. Verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders. This is quoted in Hebrews 2 as Jesus Christ talking about us, his disciples, as being his brothers. The children of God are the brothers of Jesus Christ. And Paul makes the point in Hebrews, um, drawing on this verse, that Jesus Christ now has brothers, not just servants. So we are the brothers of Jesus Christ. But this is where it comes from. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders. I'm reminded of Philippians 2.15 that says, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Yes. We're signs and wonders to those around us because we live very differently. And they marvel that we run not to the same excess of riot that they do. Yes. We're for signs and wonders because we're brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the sons of God. Verse 19 and 20. Uh, verse 20, if you say verse 20, it sounds awful dogmatic, doesn't it? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there is because there is, it is because there is no light in them. Right. That sounds awful absolute. It's hard to prove a negative, right? You can't just absolutely make blanket statements like that, can you? Well, God can because he knows the source. Because the father of lies has originated this because they're devil worshippers in verse 19. Yes. But these are most of the people in the nation of Israel and Judah that were doing this. These are all the people around them. But we have a testimony and a law that's been committed to us, and it's this word. It is. And it's like a toast. I think of this verse as a toast. To the law and to the testimony, to this word, we have something that's been committed to us. If it doesn't agree, whatever they're saying doesn't agree with this, it's because there is no light in them. Ignore it. Cease my son to hear. Uh, How's the proverb go? Cease my son to hear the words that cause to err from from instruction, something like that. I'm, I'm murdering it now. But those around us may try to tell us to seek after those things that don't agree with this word, and we have to be on guard for that. We have the body of truth committed to us; it's uh, it's us that they ought to be seeking to, not we to them.
0: Amen.
2: Anyway, I hope hope that's of interest. I hope that's of encouragement for the righteous that are in this room. That as you go out in the world, uh, that you are peculiar, a, a peculiar people, zealous of good works, and you've been singled out. For something very specific and very, uh, very wonderful. You've been committed to this and let's stay strong in it and let's seek the Lord. Let's let him be our fear and dread Amen. and let's seek his face, regardless of what those that do around us. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Excellent.
3: Ten days ago, we had a men's meeting in which we considered logic, rhetoric. And the use of it by the Lord Jesus Christ, the use of it in the Bible, and how that the faith of God is reasonable. That's right, After that men's meeting <clears throat> excuse me and uh, listening to some Scorby while I was driving around, I heard this use of logic by one of God's prophets, which, because of the men's meeting, jumped out at me Good. and got my attention. The background here is that Amaziah, not a good king of Judah, decided to go fight the Edomites. And afterwards he did some things that uh, angered the Lord, and uh the Lord sent him a prophet. Second Chronicles twenty five fourteen. Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the guides of the children of Seir, and set them up to be his guides, and bowed down himself before them, and burned incense unto them. Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? This is the logic of one of God's prophets, the logic that the Lord uses. He could have just said, I'm the Lord, you should be worshiping me. Instead, he approaches him with some very reasonable logic based on outcomes Amaziah was able to see in his own life. As I looked for cross-references for that passage, there is an entire chapter on the subject, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. Amen. But some of the best verses from Jeremiah 2 about a nation changing their gods start it, really the whole chapter. There are chapters and times in which God, to a people that is being disobedient, will just promise destruction, which is totally reasonable, and send it. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, although some of that is hinted at and mentioned, Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Lord, takes a little different approach through logic and reasoning. And again, it's the Lord pleading, oh, look what I've done. Look what I've done for you. Look how unreasonable it is for you to change God's. But here is some of it. Verse 10, For pass over the isles of Chittim, and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. This is the Lord speaking. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The Lord asks, have you ever seen a pagan nation change gods which aren't gods? No. In India, are they always Hindus? Are they going to change? Are they just going to be Hindus? In China, are they Buddhists? And have they always been? In Japan, do they worship the ancestors? Lord says, look, to pagan gods, do they just suddenly convert to another pagan god? But yet, my people have changed their glory, the true religion, for that which does not profit. Showing by the parallelism, the religion of the Lord does profit. Right. There was another king who did this as well. This was not totally unique. Ahaz, Second Chronicles 28, verse 22. And in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, Therefore, will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. There's some very faulty logic. Yes. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. This is some of the logic of God and of his prophets. In testifying, in showing the reasonableness of his religion, is not always and he could reason this way, and he does in other passages. I am the Lord; follow me. All else is sin. Period. He uses something else sometimes, which is the logic. Look how good I have been to you. Look how much I have led you. Look how much you've been prospered. Look at all the promises of prosperity, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, etc., etc., that the Lord has promised if if his people would follow him. This is just uh, something that I had encountered this week, and I uh, hope that considering that just a small amount might be profitable.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank
4: you, Chris. I want to give a a couple of thanksgivings uh, before a little exhortation. I'm just thankful over this past year, you know, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. I'm thankful for that. Uh, during this past past year, and I just want to be thankful not only to the Lord, but to each of you who spent a lot of hours with with my father, uh, helping out mom and allowing her to be at church while while you're helping to watch and take care of dad. We really appreciate and we're thankful for that. And if there is emails or cards that we didn't answer, uh, forgive us, but we're, we're very thankful for, for each of you. Uh, I always... Seem to uh, talk myself out of giving thanksgivings or words of exhortation. There's something I thought about a few weeks ago in, in some of my reading. And actually, a few weeks ago, Jonathan actually touched on it. And we've had a lot of preaching on prayer and on fasting. And so I'm not going to give, you know, any details on that. But a particular verse I'm very, very thankful for that kind of ties in with another Thanksgiving, you know, this is the 400th anniversary of our King James Bible. I'm so very thankful for that and being thankful for the Bible that we have as God's inspired word and every word is pure and every word is good and it's been preserved in the King James Bible but it's not been preserved and it's been very craftily taken out by the father of lies, Satan. And it's also brought out in, in this little exhortation that I have uh, in It's mentioned a couple times in the Gospels, but if you turn to Mark chapter, Mark chapter nine verses 14 through 19, I'll just read a little bit. You know, in in Luke 10, it talks Jesus Christ sent out uh, besides the apostles, 70 other men to go out, and he gave all kinds of special powers to heal and to cast out devils. And this kind of ties into that because this is after the disciples come back after having been out, and uh, there's a little. Confrontation that takes place. In, in verse 14 it says, And when he, speaking of Jesus, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answered him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him... Straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, and oft times it casteth him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us.
0: Amen.
4: Uh, verse 23. And Jesus said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. Amen. Unto him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Amen. Uh, verse, uh, go down to Verse 29. <clears throat> When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto them, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him.
0: Amen.
4: And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose up. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting.
0: Amen.
4: You know, we've had a lot of teaching and the Bible gives us a lot of teaching about prayer and seeking the Lord's face for the needs that we have. And that's why we just can't take part of the Bible. We've got to take all of the Bible on every aspect of it. And I know in this particular aspect it's talking about casting out a devil, but the idea that struck me was God also told them that it was, there's a specific case here with the devil that it required more than just prayer, it required yes. fasting. Yes. And very interestingly enough, all the new versions in various ways totally leave out that last half right. of that verse. They say prayer. But what if that, you know, what if you were a Christian living and you only had a perverted version of God's word and it left that out? And I, and I just started thinking, you know, we don't necessarily not have to have God's word. But if we forget that last half, what do we got in our lives that God hasn't told us specifically? Maybe that particular prayer request doesn't just take being importunate. It may also need fasting and, you know, Thinking back in, in in my situation and other families here, you know, I know when we first moved down here, you know, we had a house sale fall through before we moved, and for about nine months we had two houses, and that can be quite a burden. And you know, sad to say, that was one of the few times that I have fasted. Within a week, the house sold, and the thought, you know, has been through my mind. You know, with us that have family members that have left that are in rebellion, maybe that's an added aspect of us showing our sincerity and our determination before the Lord, along with all the other things that go along with it, like living a holy life and not yeah. quenching the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. But that could be a key that I know for myself I don't exercise enough. And when I think comparing the soul of a child to a house, uh, how much have I fasted and prayed for, not only my children, but other children and, and parents yeah. that that have left us. Uh, you know, God is in control of all things. But if we if we take his word and we search it and we make sure our lives are clean, uh, you know, this just may be one specific aspect that that we may be lacking. We're not we're not uh, faithful enough in, in, in fasting and in seeking the Lord for his goodness, because, you know, the Lord knows even in this in this chapter, you know, the man admitted, yeah, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Right. So that that was just an encouragement to me and something I want to practice more often.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you, brothers, very much. Amen. Paul, that was excellent. That we should be content with the material things God's given us in our role and place in life, and yet not be content with what we've done for the Lord, because we can do more and we should do more. We are yet debtors we can never get to a place where we're not a debtor. And Paul forgot those things which were behind him in his accomplishments and pressed forward to do more. I loved you tying in 1st Timothy 6:11 to the five verses that went in front of it that there were things that Paul told Timothy to follow after. There are things we're supposed to covet. We're to covet earnestly the best gifts, we're to covet earnestly in 1st Corinthians chapter 12. That was an excellent reminder That contentment is a very important part of a Christian's life, yet spiritual contentment is not something we should ever reach. Because even Paul, and we look at Paul's life and say, if there's a man that ever attained, it was Paul. Surely he had apprehended that for which he had been apprehended. But he said, no, I haven't. I want more. And we should be that way. Eric, excellent, from Isaiah 8. And an independent fear of the Lord regardless of others. While they're associating and while they're taking confidence in a confederacy, we take our confidence in the sanctuary of the Lord and we sanctify Him by setting Him up as being the important object of our safety and trust. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. Wonderful. Good job there in Isaiah 8. I appreciated every bit of it. Chris, when you got rolling, I wanted to leap up and shout Jeremiah 2. But you did. Jeremiah 2 is wonderful. And you, you read that verse that says you've committed two evils. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've hewn yourself out cisterns that are broken. What a contrast. Two evils. You've forsaken me, but you've been so stupid as to go worship an idol. And the way Chris approached it with two examples of kings was very good. The Lord begins that passage there in the ninth verse in Jeremiah 2 by saying, let me plead with you. That's what what you do in a debate. Mm -hmm. That's what you do when you're in court and you're pleading a case. He said, let me plead with you. You people are so foolish. No nation in the history of the world has ever forsaken their God and they never had one to start with. But you've forsaken me. So I have to call it two evils. Forsaking the only true and living God and pursuing another. And David... It is so true. We are not serious enough about seeking his face. And fasting adds to our seriousness. You know, we, we quote the words, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but fervency, how do we show it? Do we show it in volume? Do we show it in length? Do we show it in eloquence? David mentioned a part of that we don't show often enough. Fasting. When men in the word of God fasted and put sackcloth and ashes on, did it take the Lord a long time to respond? What did he do to the city of Nineveh, the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians? Forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah said. But the king of Nineveh said, let us put ourselves in sackcloth and ashes and repent from the top. I am the top all the way down to your kitty cat's put them in sackcloth and ashes, maybe the Lord will defer his anger. And he did. Amen. And he did. It's a wonderful point. The apostle, when he was preaching on marriage and the sexual aspects of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, and his point was that a married couple ought to have sex frequently to keep either of them from being tempted to look elsewhere for sexual satisfaction in that context, He said, I can only think of one reason why you should interrupt that normal marital relationship if it be by mutual consent for fasting and prayer. He assumed it as part of a Christian's life. How often do we do it? Thank you, Lord, for four brothers and four different subjects that should have provoked all of us.